Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, July 7th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The question everyone in the New York, New Jersey metro region wants to know is what is Chris Christie's exit plan? Because if it's PATH or New Jersey Transit, they're experiencing significant delays. We're backed up to the Raritan Toll Plaza on the Turnpike, 45 minutes inbound on the GWB. But in professional terms, I mean in professional terms, Chris Christie, what's he going to do next? He's tipped his hand. The truculent, argumentative, brash, soon-to-be former governor, has discovered a milieu which suits his skill set, sports talk radio. He is, in fact, scheduled next week to co-host a show on New York sports radio station WFAN in something of a tryout for the Mike Francesa time slot. Once Francesa, the dean of sports talk radio, leaves the airwaves as he announced he will in a few months. Christie has been a guest in the past on WFAN, and every once in a while he just likes to call in. Chris and Seaside Park, you're on the air. All right. Uh, who wants to come on now? The governor. The governor of uh, who? Of New Jersey. Of New Jersey. I don't think he's allowed to do that, is he? I guess we'll find out. I guess so. You, you want to come on? Are you sure? You, you know what time it is or what? You, you're talking to me? Yeah, I'm talking to you. Do you know what time it is? Are you allowed to come uh, on in the afternoon? No, I, I have no idea what time it is. I'm completely disoriented, Mike. Okay. Like, am I calling in at the wrong time? Yeah, usually, yes. I thought you only went on in the morning. If Christie does get his own show or gets to co-host a show, I can only imagine how it might go. Ace and the governor on the fan. One sits in the bleachers, the other yells at teachers. It's Ace and the governor on the fan. Ace threw the ball to home plate. Christie's the one who started Bridgegate. It's Ace and the governor. Hey, it's Ace and the governor. Former governor Chris Christie here taking calls along with me. Ace, okay. Stephen Lodi, what do you think of Tim Hardaway's contract? Uh, yeah, I think the Knicks are. Get your fat ass off the beach, Christy! All right, there, Steve. We got to leave it right there. All right, let's now go to Bob. Bob in Matwan. How do you think Joe Girardi's handling this losing streak? Yeah, uh, first time, long time. Uh, listen, I mean, I'm worried he's going to burn out the pan and get off the beach, you fat whale! Okay there, Bob. Well, this is going well, Chris. Governor, why don't I throw it to you? You're a Mets fan. Is their pitching staff ever going to come together? Well, you know, when you have an arm like Syndergaard, shut up, shut up. I was stuck in traffic for five hours in Fort Lee because of you. Shut up. You're my co-host. You're not supposed to do this. Sorry, Governor. We're up against 2020 Sports Flash, but we're taking your calls. Three more hours of Knicks, Mets, Nets, Jets, and Giants fans given a huge target to take out their frustrations on. What could go wrong? Ace and the Governor. That was Ace and the Governor. On the show today, I spiel about the Putin-Trump meeting at the G20 and why diplomacy, or seeing things his way, isn't the best tact. But first, we go from Chris Christie, a man whose fantasy it is to talk about baseball, to Dan Okrent, a man who invented fantasy baseball. But that is not why Dan Okrent is here. Okrent originated 
the position of ombudsman for the New York Times, and now the position itself has gone away. We'll talk about the changing status of official journalism watchdogs and take your calls for Governor... No, we won't. We'll just talk to Dan Okren. The New York Times has just announced that it is ending the tradition and position of ombudsman, or as they call it, public editor. This is the person who would interact with readers and listen to their complaints that it's called the occupied territories or the disputed territories, or it should be called partial birth abortion or so-called partial birth abortion. They even took a lot of complaints that weren't about Israel or abortion. The very first public editor of the New York Times coming on the heels of the Jason Blair scandal in 2003 was Dan Okrent, and he joins me now. Hello, Dan. How are you? Very well, Mike. How are you? I'm well. Before I ask your opinion of the Times' latest decision, just tell me about your time as public editor. Did you enjoy it? No, I wasn't. It wasn't fun. It was the most interesting job I ever had. Uh, it was certainly exciting, but you know, I was like internal affairs in a police department. Nobody liked to see me coming. Everybody I dealt with was angry. It was either readers or people who had been written about who were unhappy with the, t- the paper's coverage, or when I went to challenge them about what they had done or ask them about it, the uh, staff editors and, and writers, they say, oh my God, here he comes again. You know, so yeah. it was n- uh, n- not a lot of jollies, but uh, I do have to say that there were many people at the Times who were very supportive and a lot of readers who liked what I did, and I was glad to get out in 18 months, but I was uh, um, pleased that I had done it. You must have gotten, though, moments when perhaps you spoke a truth that maybe some large percentage of the newsroom agreed with but didn't want to say, or maybe even, although this does not comport with what I know of human nature, your insight changed minds, even within the newsroom, or maybe just among listeners. Did either of those things happen? Well, the first, uh, yeah. I mean, there were several things that I wrote that I got a lot of support from people on the staff. In many cases, it was because I was criticizing somebody who was particularly unpopular, so I wouldn't applaud their uh, judgment on that uh, on that basis. But you know, I think that there are things that any journalist would respond to. My criticism of the paper's previous coverage of the weapons of mass destruction was quite popular. I think in the mm-hmm. newsroom, I found when I started my first week or second week on the job, I went to Washington and spoke for an hour with 40 members of the Times Washington Bureau, which is not fun. I don't, don't recommend it to anybody. They're very tough questioners. It was very suspicious. <laughs> they were suspicious. Uh, some were hostile. I went back in my last month on the job, and the reception couldn't have been warmer. So, you know, it, 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 there are many things that people responded to favorably once they realized that I wasn't the devil. Then again, there were those who always thought I was the devil, and if I had said the you know the sun came up in the east, they would have disagreed with it. Yeah, or at least uh, you know couch it as uh, some say <laughs> sources right. yeah, sources yeah, close a... to the ombudsman. Um, exactly. What was your legacy? I think my legacy was the work of the four and a half people who followed me, and then it was kind of wiped out by the dismissal of Elizabeth Spade and the ending of the job. I mean, yes, there were things that I brought up that may have had a little bit of influence on the direction of the paper, but 
even those things, they get forgotten pretty quickly. So I would say that the legacy is that of an interesting historical moment. Mm, that's good. Now, I, you touch upon my next area. What do you make of them eliminating the position entirely? Well, um, I was not surprised, but I was disappointed. I think that the position has real merit. I think that it was useful for the newspaper. I think that it helped the newspaper's reputation. On the other hand, I can see why over a period of time it may have gotten tiresome. Secondarily, the uh, rest of the industry had shrunk away from these positions. I think the only remaining ombudsman in the U.S. now are at NPR and ESPN. The Washington Post got rid of there shortly after Marty Barron took over there. He had never liked it when he was at the Globe. And then there's also, I should say, there's also the matter of the economic straits that newspapers are in these days. Now, when you have a staff as large as the Times, it's hard to say, well, we have to, if we're going to you know, make our numbers this year, we have to get rid of the public editor rather than something else. But if you are closing bureaus or if you are cutting back on editors, it's very hard to say to your staff, you know, your job's not that important. We need to keep the public editor. Yeah, that always struck me. When I worked for NPR, Sometimes I thought the public editor or what we call the ombudsman made good points. Sometimes he or she didn't. I never thought that the position was worth the opportunity cost of a bureau, which usually at NPR is just a person, or a, um, you know, a reporter and a half. Never thought that. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think you know, I, that's what I understand. And I think it's perfectly reasonable that, that people should think that way. But if you have a, a newsroom budget of $250 million, yeah. which is what it was at the time. I think it's probably higher than that. Now, any individual job is really not tradable with another individual job. It just, you know, it isn't a question of, well, it's either the public editor or the Berlin Bureau, because there are a thousand other ways to fund the Berlin Bureau if you want to. So if you look at it in the, in the context of there being 1,200 people in the newsroom staff, I'd make the case that if we had... 1199 plus a public editor, we'd be better off than having 1200 and not a public editor. Gotcha. Another uh, complaint I would have about public editors uh, as an institution is they're never the ombudsman for interestingness. So uh, given a choice between, oh, spend two more paragraphs clarifying that or say it in one paragraph, they can always tell you to take more time to do it. They can always say, you know, you should have included 14 footnotes. There's nothing incumbent. I've never, maybe you, maybe Sullivan, but I rarely have seen a public editor say, yeah, that would just be too boring for most readers. Well, as with any other job, as with uh, you know, a radio interviewer, there are people who are good at it, and there are people who are not good at yeah. it. You know, I, I think that that, uh, and this isn't about any of my successes at the Times, but just generally, you know, a lot of public editors and ombudsmen around the country whose work that I read at some papers, it was it was fly specs. You know, it was you know whether the ink was coming off of people's uh, fingers as they were reading the newspaper, <laughs> or was the type the type size of the clues on the crossword puzzle too difficult to read. Not that those things aren't important, but that's a different kind of oversight than that exercised by those of us who were more concerned about the practice of journalism. Yeah. My, my big complaints with journalism is uh, they got us into war under false pretext and smudgy fingers. Those are, those are my top two. 
Yeah, and, and you know, wet newspaper and, and late. You know, those, yeah, those yeah. are the primary things. Yep. Um, do you think that most pub or many public editors were or many ombudsmen are just in the position essentially for PR purposes as opposed to the uh, better angels of the nature of the publishers of newspapers? Uh, I'm not sure there's a big difference between those two things. In other words, if, if the PR purpose is to make people think that we are open, and in fact, you are open, then okay, it's a PR purpose, but it's also the better, better angels. Uh, you know, it's, it's when you have a public editor that you don't allow to say certain things, then it's bullshit. Do you buy one of the excuses, and we've talked about eliminating the position, but one of the justifications was that given our media world and how interactive and accessible reporters and uh, editors are on Twitter and in other forums, that it has somewhat obviated the job. is. Do you give that argument much truck? No, none. The, the virtue of a public editor or ombudsman, when the job is done properly, is the authority that the person brings to it and the presence, the physical presence in the newspaper or in a prominent place on the website. You know, you can go to the comment section on any story and in any newspaper and have a thousand comments, and it's very easy for the management of the newspaper or the radio station or whatever it is to ignore them all. Those commenters are talking to each other. They're not talking to the people who run the newspaper. A public editor who's publishing in the newspaper or who has his or her work on the homepage of a newspaper, that's something that the editors of the newspaper cannot ignore. That's too visible. And the, the person who's doing it, if, if he or she does it well, uh, has too much credibility to ignore the way you can ignore the comments of readers if you wish to. This is not something I've heard anyone say, and it might not even be something that anyone who made the decision to eliminate the job actually consciously thought of. But I do perceive that in 2017, the great tension or great vulnerability of journalism is not that the public is not reading critically enough. It's questioning the very truth and veracity, the the fundamental foundation of how you do your job. And with and with so much criticism and there's this fight between truth and fiction going on in the world, maybe now is not the time to shoot ourselves from the inside. Maybe some of that thinking, conscious or unconscious, was going on. Yeah, I think that there is something. I mean, I, I remember very clearly in, in 2004, a correspondent from the Middle East who's, uh, I, I, I made a comment on one sentence he had written as an example. It was, a, it was a, the, the famous analysts say, mm-hmm. You know, according to analysts, such and such, so and so, and I criticized that. I was one of three or four that I mentioned, did not mention the writer's name because it was a you know, kind of, I was dealing with the phenomenon. And he sent me a letter, an email that said, you know, I am risking my life every day here trying to do the best job I can for this newspaper. I don't need to be stabbed in, in my back by somebody who works for the same institution. And I thought that was on the one hand, an overreaction. On the other hand, I understood entirely. Uh, why are we taking ourselves to task? Why are we beating ourselves up when we have this vital job that we have to do and we have to be able to persuade readers that we are doing it well? I think that makes a great deal of sense. On the other hand, I think the presence of a good public editor gives credibility to what the newspaper is doing. These people are willing to have their laundry hung out in public. They're willing to be examined. They're willing to respond to criticism in a very prominent place. That, to me, adds credibility to the institution.
Dan Okrent was the New York Times' first public editor. Thanks so much, Dan. Pleasure to talk to you, Mike. And now the spiel, Russian President Vladimir Putin met U.S. President Donald Trump apparently for the first time, unless you take literally the times in the past when Trump spoke of meeting Putin. But don't take that literally. The part that was televised was completely anodyne, with cable news offering wall-to-wall coverage of handshake mechanics, eye contact, the issue of Labrador retriever exclusion. Yes, you know this, right? That Putin once brought a Labrador to meet Angela Merkel because she doesn't like dogs. Though I'd guess between a dog and Putin, she likes dogs. After the meeting, Trump and Putin, which stretched to like two and a half hours, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson described a tactic that had to be employed. Uh, Several times I I had to remind the president, people were sticking their heads in the door and I think they even they sent in the first lady at one point to see if she could get us out of there, and uh, that didn't work either. But yes, it's true. But uh, Donald, Donald, I have my anti-bullying protocol ready. We just need buy-in from Han Asshole Solo. Tillerson gave his comments off-camera, audio only, and his comments were not permitted to be transmitted live. So that was how the country that invented freedom of the press ran things. Sergey Lavrov. Tillerson's Russian counterpart, well, except for the fact that Lavrov has experienced staff, a power center, and his boss's backing. Anyway, Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, gave his briefing on live TV. That didn't mean that the Russian was always cooperative with the press. Here he is objecting to a reporter reporting. So you mentioned the arrangement on the southern part. You really, we are really behaving very badly, you know. But onto the big question that hung over the meeting, Lavrov said that Trump accepted statements from Vladimir Putin that Russia had not hacked the U.S. election. President Trump has said that he has heard clear declarations from Mr. Putin that Russian leadership and Russian government has not interfered in the elections. And he accepts these, uh, the things that Putin, Mr. Putin has said. Tillerson did not contradict that assertion that Trump accepted Putin's who us explanation. Here's how the U.S. Secretary of State put it. The two leaders also acknowledged the challenges of cyber threats and interference in the democratic processes of the United States and other countries and agreed to explore creating a framework around which the two countries can work together to better understand how to deal with these cyber threats. Putin acknowledged the challenges of cyber threats and will explore how to deal with them. Uh, don't hack us? That's one way to deal with them. Tillerson gave no indication that President Trump pushed Putin to any place that the Russian leader was uncomfortable going. Uh, The president pressed President Putin on more than one occasion regarding Russian involvement. Uh, President Putin denied such involvement uh, as I think he has in the past. And then Tillerson used that great rhetorical dodge, changing the terms of the discussion to the future. It's not clear to me that we will ever come to some agreed upon resolution of that question between the two nations. So the question is, what, what do we do now? 
and I think the relationship, and the President made this clear as well, is too important. And it's too important to not find a way to move forward. Well, I can think of a lot of international situations which in no way depend on both sides agreeing. The American election was hacked and attacked by Russian hackers. Preventing this problem depends on agreeing about this fact no more than defeating Al-Qaeda depended on us getting Al-Qaeda to agree with us or even how getting better trade terms over Canadian softwood lumber depends on Canada seeing our side of things. When the U.S. gives an adversary veto power over its policy and the ability to evade consequence by simply saying, yeah, we disagree, then the U.S. capitulates and fails to use all the tools it has available as the most powerful nation on earth. Look, I don't know what Trump's critics expected would happen. Trump is not the sort of guy who'd point a finger and say, knock it off, Vlad. He holds those stern tactics for Megyn Kelly. He's Trump. He doesn't want to do or say anything that would lead anyone to question the legitimacy of his election. And if that includes playing patty cake with the former KGB agent, so be it. But this was not a failing of Trump and Putin to see eye to eye. This was a failure of the Trump administration to fight tooth and nail against what should be an unacceptable menace brought by an adversary. And that's it for today's show. Chris Berube, GIST producer, has been hired to vet and correct mistakes made by U.S. island territories in Micronesia. He's the Guam Budsman. Mary Wilson, GIST producer, has some strong opinions on Chapstick, Carmex, Burt's Bees. She's the Lip Balm Budsman. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, serves as kind of an intermediary between consumers and the largest municipality in Tanzania. He's the Dar es Salaam Budsman. The GIST. Selleck went from too hairy to refreshingly hirsute without much grooming. Bergeron, as multifaceted as he is industrious. Waits, his songs, though technically suitable to all merchant vessels, don't always adhere to the classic call and response of the sea shanty. These and other observations freely offered in our role as Tom Budsman. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening.